listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. David slayed Goliath last week. Killed the giant. His head rolled across the ground. David is the teenage conqueror. It is extremely unlikely. No one that day left that battle going, oh, David's a perfect warrior. They left that battle going like, whoa, God is with that guy. There is no reason he should drop a full-grown man with a rock running full speed across a field as a teenager. No reason, unless God was there to prove the point that I will conquer all of Israel's enemies to continue to move towards my savior king to come through David himself, one of his own descendants, not just to save Israel, but to save the whole world. Did you know King David is like the great, 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 great grandpa of Jesus? That's why we got a glimpse that one day Jesus will come and he'll slay the devil just like that through the cross. David went down to battle in the valley, but Jesus will go down not as a shepherd, but as a sheep to be slaughtered for us. He won't even bring a sling, but he would die for us. And so David walks out of this victory, walks out of this battle, and the rest of 1 Samuel, if that's like a big highlight for David, the rest of 1 Samuel kind of doesn't go great for David. These are going to be some dark areas of his life because while God has had him anointed to be king over Israel, he's not king yet. Another guy is king, King Saul, and God has removed the spirit to lead off Saul, put it on David. And so David's going to have this like humble rise all the way up to the throne. And then Saul's going to have this decline in his fear and pride the rest of the book. And we follow these narratives and it could have been different. Saul could have recognized what is happening, recognized his unwillingness to lead Israel and just handed over the throne. But instead he denies God's leading and it makes for painful reading. And it's a painful end to Saul's life. And the narrative does something beautiful because it teaches us these things, but it does does so by showing a beautiful friendship a friendship between Jonathan and David. And it's important to pay attention to something we toss around all the time, like friendship, because honestly, church, you were made for friendship. God made you, every single person who's ever lived in his own image, to relate to God, to be friends with God. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, what do you find out? that Adam was like walking around with God on earth. We were meant to be friends with God. But even before sin came and separated us from God, it says that Adam was lonely. Church, you were made to connect with other people as part of the normal human life, even before sin and how much more desperately after sin. And God made us this way because God has always been in relationship with himself. There's one God, but it's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they've been in perfect friendship, perfect community, perfect intimacy for all of eternity. And if you've ever wondered why God create all this stuff, why is there even a universe? Why are there even galaxies? Why are there stars? Why is there sand? Why is there bugs that bite me constantly now in Alabama? It's back. The sun comes back and so does the pain. It just, it's a one-two. Why? 
because God wanted to share this relationship he had with himself with more, with all of you. That should blow our mind that God created it all to have a relationship where he shares his love, his power, his glory, that he would get more glory in sharing this, but also give because he just didn't have to. The grand theory of everything in all the world is that God existed in an overflowing, loving community with himself and decided to share it. But in sin, we lost that. We lost this intimate connection with God and made friendship more difficult between one another. We're still created for community, but the communion with God is only made between but with the work of Jesus Christ, through trusting Jesus, we can commune with God. And we can commune better with others if we commune with God too through Jesus Christ. We can learn how to have a godly friendship. And so as we look at this narrative, we see Jonathan is a valuable example of a godly friend. Who doesn't want to be a better friend? No, just me. I am working on it, guys. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate that, Jackson. You are a wonderful friend. Verse one says this, as soon as he'd finished speaking this all, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. See, David beats Goliath and immediately goes from like shepherd guy out in the field and part-time liar player in the temple all the way to full-time staff at the palace and like general in the Israeli army. And we see this big transition. Jonathan should be rivals, even enemies with David. Because guess who's in line for the throne? It's Jonathan. He's the eldest son of Saul. So when he's taking off this robe, he's saying, here, you have all the royal stuff. I agree. God is doing a work in your life. He might not totally understand what's happening, but he says, you are going to be the next king, not me. He's given away all of his stuff, his movement when he should be enemies. He should be rivals. He should be conspiring. Read any play by Shakespeare, study any Roman history. They all kill each other, not Jonathan. He says, you know what? I'm going to be friends with this guy. And we wonder, well, why would he do that? Why would he give up the most important role in the whole country? You might even think it's his birthright and he lets it go. Well, we read in 1 Samuel 14, 6 and 7, we learn this of Jonathan's character. Look what it says. It says, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. That's their word for all the pagans. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. When he sees David kill the giant, he recognizes David has the same faith as me, that God is alive and is staying true to his promises. When he knits his soul together, it's not because David is a charming friend but he sees his dad has left the ways of faith. But Jonathan's faith hasn't faltered. And he sees, I have a true brother in David who's willing to trust by many or by few that God is God and I serve him. And it knits their hearts 
together, that he too believes God at his word. And see, now there are some modern non-Christian commentators that have tried to make this friendship between Jonathan and David a homosexual relationship. But the problem with that idea is there's not a hint of it or suggestion anywhere in the text. See, homosexuality is forbidden in God's law, just like all sexual activity outside of a loving marriage between a man and a woman. It would not even be on the mindset of Jonathan and David in any way. And the Bible isn't doing some cover-up either. The King Saul, King David, King Solomon, these pages are filled with unflattering sins of these men, including sexual ones, as we'll get to in time. And while I do think it's baseless conjecture to say this is a homosexual relationship, I also think it speaks to the norm of shallow relationships in our culture. Our culture teaches that deep friendship must be romantic to be meaningful. And I'm here to tell you that's simply not true. It's just not true. There's all sorts of deep, meaningful friendships between different ages and different genders and different situations that can have meaning and power that are devoid of sexual desire. No matter what our culture tells us, the truth is is this. Our sexuality is not ultimate. It is not the main defining factor of you. The ultimate thing on this earth is the person who created the universe. God is ultimate, and the truth is you were made for God. That's the defining relationship of what it means to be human. And we see with Jonathan and David a pattern for us to follow, to have strong, meaningful relationships. And men, pay attention here. Strong, meaningful adult relationships between men, the rarest of all things. It's like finding the albino deer. It's tough, but it can happen. And how transformative is it when it does? Here are the three things we see in their relationship, and they'll be in the text as we go. But first, a godly friendship follows God's direction, God's glory. There is a together direction that we want to live this life together, and we have a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. There can be other friendships, but a godly friendship follows God's direction. It's for Him. Second, a godly friendship commits to the other friend's good. How countercultural is that? where we have a culture that wants to cancel absolutely everyone that's not about us and our thing. There's even a book floating around that's like, hey, go find your people. It's kind of the whole title of the book. And the problem that the premise is wrong because biblical friendship isn't about finding your people to possess them. It's about loving the actual people in your life and letting the friendships grow appropriately from there. We're not master collector or commander of people. That's weird. That would make sense if everything revolved around us, but we revolve around the sun and everything else revolves around God. We are just part of the equation. The third thing is godly friendship delights in the friend, both in joy and sorrow. Godly friendship is actually able to show up to the tears and show up to the joys. On the front end, we see Jonathan, he's ready to celebrate. There's probably people in the crowd who thought Jonathan should have killed the giant. If dad wasn't going to do it, maybe Jonathan was going to do it. And instead of, man, I can't believe David came and stole all the glory. 
He's taking off his sword and handing it to him. He is showing up for to delight in this friend in David. He gives the robe off his back. And we want to think of David and Jonathan as peers. But to be honest, according to the dates given to us in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, they're not really the same age. If you add up all the dates of their dad and all the stuff, they're at least 27 years apart, probably more like 35. So this isn't even like an older brother, Jonathan, younger brother, David. This is like, could be, John, could be David's dad older than David, which makes it even more beautiful for us in Citizens Church. The intergenerational relationships that we strive for are very possible, godly, beautiful, and could even be normal. These aren't life stage buddies knit together by similar interests. These are friends that are knit together because of the Lord's direction. They've committed to each other's good, as the text will show us. And they show up emotionally to delight in one another. You ever had a friend show up for you emotionally? I remember in 2011, I was in Tuscaloosa, a tornado ripped apart our home. We lost our cars. We were in the home when it happened. And I remember it changed my life to see my friend named Brant coming over a hill, out of breath from biking and jogging, because he just knew from seeing the path of the tornado that obviously the carls have been hit, and he biked for miles to come find me. And they come and hug me and my wife and weep. And there was a moment that he had sought my good. He didn't know what was happening. Darkness was falling. He showed up for me emotionally. And me and Brant, we're not even best friends. He was just a good friend in my life. But in that moment, it meant everything. I can think of the time that I got a call that my son was likely dying in my wife's womb, that the results from the doctor came back. And calling a friend who hung up the phone and drove over just to hug me and say, I don't know if it's going to be all right, but I'll pray with you and keep sitting with you on this porch as the sun went down. When people show up emotionally and delight in one another, something magical happens. We get just a sliver of what God enjoys every day in the Trinity of himself and what he wants us to enjoy every day for eternity. That's what's at stake in friendship. So let's pay attention as the story progresses. But Saul, King Saul, he chooses another way. He does not befriend David. He even loses the relationship with his son over all these things. And he gives a picture of how to ruin a friendship. Verse six, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. That's why I'm not in the worship band team. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. And he eyed David from that day on. David hits rock star status in ancient Israel in one battle. The people come out to greet the king. They're singing David's song. Saul is great, but David is greater. Israel loves some David. Who wouldn't love that story? And Saul starts to implode with fear. You'll notice in the text over and over, it repeats fear, 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 fear of David, fear of life, fear of everything. He understands God's spirit has departed from him and on to David. 
And Saul winds up so full of fear and not faith, fear to maintain his position, fear to maintain his power, fear at what repentance would look like, that Saul's story highlights some pretty good ways to destroy a friendship. Saul is angry. Saul is violent. Saul is jealous. Saul is distrustful. These are great ways to kill a friendship. When we choose to be angry and violent, we will find ourselves alone in the end. When you become no longer a safe person, you will end up alone. Whether it's the roommates moving out, get more serious behind a jail cell, get real serious in a divorce. A friendless person is usually an angry and violent person. It will isolate you and potentially harm and abuse others. Jealousy makes us blind to all reason because jealousy is theological. It's saying to God, it would be better if I were him or her. Why do you do this to me, God? And it makes us unthinking. And anger and jealousy, as we've learned on true, true crime TV shows and podcasts, what do anger and jealousy equal? Murder. Murder. Always, always is anger and jealousy on every pod. And the same with this story. We're heading right there. <laughs> but I want to include distrust as well. As Saul will be obsessed for the rest of 1 Samuel with the idea that David's trying to take Saul's throne, even though David never tries, even though David has a chance to kill him, even though David could round up some guys and, and perform a coup and get the throne. He could do all these things and he's not doing any of it, but Saul has his eye on David. And we learn something about distrust. Not only does it unravel all of Saul's relationships, including his relationship with God, when we are distrustful, when we suspect other people, we tend to see what we suspect. When you suspect someone, you tend to see what you suspect. And how do you avoid this? How could Saul easily avoided this and not doomed his relationships? He could have had an honest conversation. He could have just asked David and talked about what they were going to do. But instead he suspects, therefore he sees, and his distrust grows. And church, I don't want us to fall into that. You can have honest conversations, even if they're embarrassing, awkward, and painful. It might sound like this. Hey, spouse, I've distrusted you in regards to faithfulness in our marriage. Could we talk about my concerns, even if they're crazy? And Maybe I need to repent of my distrust, and, and hopefully it'll give me a chance to say that I've been wrong. But could we, do, could we address this instead of me looking for clues all the time? Maybe you could come to a friend and say, I've distrusted how you speak about me when I'm not around. Could we talk about this? I hope I'm very wrong and I can't wait to apologize for even talking about it. But I see my distrust is growing and I just need to have an honest conversation. Could we look at maybe it's even the Lord? And this is a kind of a pattern for repentance, to look back into the Lord's eyes, to look at his things in scripture and say, Lord, I know what it says, but I've chosen distrust over and over. It's not that I don't have enough knowledge. It's that I have been unwilling to take your word seriously. 
Lord, I'm sorry, I repent. Help me obey where I haven't before. How we relate to people horizontally is likely how we relate to them vertically and vice versa. You're not two different people, you're just one person. When you see these patterns here, they're probably going on here. If you see patterns here, you're probably going on here too. But we don't have to be King Saul because we do have King Jesus. Saul's anger makes the palace a dangerous place to live and work. The palace is very dangerous. Why? Well, Saul will try to murder David at least six times in the next three chapters. He's going to throw a bunch of spears at him. By God's grace, David kind of dip, dodge, duck, kind of makes all the spears miss. It's great. Uh, Saul attempts to send David on these overly dangerous missions, not for the glory of Israel, but just kind of get him out in the woods and see what happens on crazy odds. He sends assassins after David. David's wife, Michal, Saul's daughter, turns against her father in this marriage and hatches a wild plan to help David escape through a window. There's all sorts of stuff going on, but we could summarize it as the palace is dangerous and David is having a hard time. Things, years are going by. This isn't like a two-week summer vacation of murder. This is like years are passing where he's kind of always on edge. Is the food poison? Does that guy have a dagger? All the time. And so finally, after being on the run, David has a convo with his best bud, Jonathan, about leaving for good. This is chapter 20. But Jonathan disagrees with him. And a conflict ensues. What, what a study in friendship. Do we even get a conflict? 1 Samuel 20, verse, verse 1. Then David fled and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Why is this guy trying to kill me? And he said to him, this is Jonathan, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So the conflict plainly stated is David has been running for his life after a fresh murder plot. And John says, you're exaggerating. Things are fine. That's called a hand wave. Have you ever been hand waved? It doesn't feel great when you tell someone a serious problem. They go, yeah, it's no big deal. John just did that to David. But instead of David uh, cutting him off or getting offended, David sticks with honesty. He chooses to earnestly communicate with Jonathan. And Jonathan, to his great credit, listens to his friend. Verse 3. But David vowed again saying, your father knows well that I found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. Hey, Jonathan, dad's hiding these things from you. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. I live every day a step from death because your dad is throwing spears and trying to kill me. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So they come up with a plan to tell if King Saul is murderous towards David by David skipping out on an important feast. 
And in verse 11, they share this as they continue. And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out to the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said, may the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love to my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan sees the great purpose of God in David's life. And he asks, not just for protection, but for the actual love of David. It's a man that delights in the friendship of David and wants it to extend to his household forever. Verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Jonathan fully aligns himself with his friend and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. They work out this conflict. In the words of our membership commitment, they believe the best, they listen well, they forgave easily. And we see Conflict doesn't mean a friendship's coming to an end if it's committed to God's direction. Conflict means it's time for that relationship to shine. You don't have to run away at conflicts. If you trust in the direction of God and God's leadership, and you know that friend does, you can show up listening, show up believing the best, show up forgiving easily. Now, the reconciliation might take a step, You might have to work it out, but you can show up ready to forgive. They commit to each other's good, even risking danger. To align against the king is to make the murder plot fall on to you. And they choose to delight in each other's friend, share their emotions, share how they're feeling, and even affirm one another as friends. Church, who do you need to affirm as your friend? What would it feel like to go to someone and say, you are my friend in case you had any doubt? In fact, you're such my friend that I would happily die for you. That I would happily align in your worst moments, pledge not to leave you or forsake you, just how the Lord does to us. It turns out King Saul is murderous. He wants another go at David. Jonathan comes to his senses that his dad is a problematic guy for David. King Saul raves on about Jonathan losing the kingdom. He curses his own son and then throws a spear at Jonathan now. Then by shooting some arrows in a field, Jonathan sends this message to David that you better go ahead and leave town, that my dad is set on murdering you. And then we get one last scene between these two men. Verse 41, and it And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another. That'd be the kiss on the cheek deal. David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is a weeping, worthy friendship. They've committed and pledged that their lives will run together, even in danger. They're delighting in each other. And church, 
This is where I want to turn and ask you, think on your friends. Do you have friends going in the same direction with the Lord? Do you have friends that you can follow Jesus with? Have you worked through conflict in life to get to the point of weeping over friends departing? Is that even in your vocabulary to think that you would shed tears before a friend, especially at leaving them for some long time? Have you allowed yourself to be vulnerable enough to delight in and be delighted in? Here's the truth. If you aren't being vulnerable with another, which is honesty in a relationship on a regular basis, then you cannot be delighted in truly. If you are not truly known, it's going to be tough to be truly loved. Likewise, if you are not able, if you are not delighting in others, you're probably not loving them deeply either. C.S. Lewis put it this way To love at all is to be vulnerable. To love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. When we refuse to live this in friendships of marriage, friendships with people around us, friendships, these close friends, our hearts slowly, slowly grow cold and then turn to stone. And you've seen it. People that have pushed people away for so long it's very tough to get close to people again. Research suggests a close friend takes about 200 hours of FaceTime in a two-year span. Not FaceTime on an iPhone, but physical face-to-face -face time. That maths out to about two hours a week of friendship. Most of us have not had that experience as adults, not had that kind of experience of deep friendship since maybe high school or military or perhaps college. And I just want to invite you to trust again, church, to say, if God did it once in your life, maybe he'll do it again. Maybe you can have deep friends again in every area of your life. If you find one deep, close friend at Citizens, that's fantastic. If you get two, you won the lotto. But think about your work. Think about your family. Think about roommates, spouse. Man, if you wind up with three, four close friends after three years of hard work, you are relationally rich. Research suggests you can only have two to five very close friends because it takes up so much time and relational equity. You can have another dozen or two pretty close friends, which is awesome. I hope our rosters fill up. But would you in faith go to God and say, God, would you help me build three close friends at Citizens and beyond and take the steps of vulnerability, take the steps of saying no to some things to say yes to 200 hours of FaceTime? Very few of us just have an available 200 hours of FaceTime with someone. We'll have to say some no's.
to say some yeses to deep friendship. Meaning is made in commitment, committed sacrificial relationships. The deepest meaning is made in committed sacrificial relationships following God's direction. Listen to how one pastor put this uh, about friendship. He said, this world is full of sorrow because it's full of sin. It's a dark place. It's a lonely place. It's a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendships halves our troubles and doubles our joys. That's the magic of friendship on the best days and the worst. When I speak of cultivating a diverse community, I mean building that community brick by brick through friendships. Not an abstract idea of community, but actual through people relating to one another. Our hope for friendship comes from the true king himself, the greater David in Jesus, the king of friendship. In John 15, 12, he says this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you, God's direction. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls you friend because he laid down his life to bring you back to friendship with God. Like Adam in the garden, he is the king of friendship and he wants an actual relationship with each of you. He shed his precious blood to do so. You can become friends with God today. Apart from believing and trusting Jesus, you're actually, the Bible says, far from God. But if you choose to repent and believe in Jesus, you can become a friend of God today. And the same power that makes you friends with God empowers you to love one another. That's what I said, that the true godly friendships are committed to God's direction. Then they commit to another's good, just as Christ committed to our good. And then they delight in one another, that our God is not a transactional God, that he just pays off our debt and lets us go. It's more like bringing you into a family, erasing all the charges against you, but also walking you back into the house and saying, dinner's ready, and you got a seat at the table forever. Can you offer a seat at a table to others? Are your dinners and lunches open to have a little more company in them? Friendship is a gift from God. Let's unwrap the gift and keep unwrapping it. Friendship halves our sorrows and doubles our joy. We can become true friends with one another and we become true friends with God himself. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.